Our Father in heaven, how wondrous are your creations, how marvelous your works. And Father, we're so grateful for the blessings of the Sabbath day wherein we could find time apart, set aside, sanctified while we're being with you. And Father, as we conclude this Sabbath and we look at the things which you have made, help us to reaffirm our faith in the Creator Jehovah and help us to see how the things that have been created are strong evidence that in fact you exist. But not only that you exist, but that you want to be an integral part of our personal lives. Father, descend upon us, send your Holy Spirit. May he educate us and illuminate our minds. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you like to eat? Come on, be honest. I mean, I think it kind of shows a little bit for me, but uh, you know, one of my favorite foods is pasta. And my wife will tell you that I introduced to her this pesto sauce. Incidentally, I'm vegan, so it's very hard to make a good tasting pesto sauce without the Romano cheese. But uh, I have this recipe. It's not that secret anymore, but you know, this is something that I can make. Does it look good? Yes. Yeah? You're hungry all over. Is it supper time already? Oh boy, I better let you out of here soon. Now, how many have eaten something like this before? Come on, let me see some hands. All right. How many of you would like to eat it tonight? Amen. <laughs> I'm not going to cook for you, okay? I even had someone ask me, do you, you want to sing a solo? Well, no. And no, I don't want to cook for you either. So, but how many of you want to eat this not only tonight, but tomorrow morning? Yes. Tomorrow lunch. <laughs> Tomorrow supper. What about eating this for the rest of your life? No? no? Okay, think not about this then. Think about your favorite food. Your favorite food. Okay? I'm sure you have some. Maybe pizza. I don't know. Chocolate. Chocolate. <laughs> think about eating your absolute favorite food for every single meal for the rest of your life. Would you enjoy that? Some of us might, but the most, most of us, we would not. Why? Because we all love what? Variety. Variety. Well, imagine if there was only one form of life on this planet. Only one form. Now, obviously, that's not the case because when you look out there, the surface of the earth is teeming with living organisms ranging from the size of a bacteria that looks like this, which is the diameter of one two thousandths of a millimeter, all the way from something this microscopic to the giant redwoods, which reach heights of 300 feet or more. Now, how many of you have seen these trees in person? Do you feel small? Oh, man, it feels like you're on a different planet. In fact, here is um, myself and my son. He's kind of sleeping there. 
But just to give you a perspective of the size and the immensity of these trees, here are my uh, parents-in-law standing in front of one. Did you know there was the Chandler tree that you could actually drive through, but now you can't anymore? This is how big these trees are. So in terms of volume or mass, these trees would be the largest living organism on this planet. But in the animal kingdom, does anyone know what the largest animal is? Okay, I heard it. It's the blue whale. The great blue whale can have lengths of 110 feet, and they may be the heaviest animals to have ever lived on this planet. You know, they can actually swim 20 miles an hour, and they can dive to depths of two miles in the sea. These whales are impressive, and we're actually going to talk about these awesome whales here later on in our presentation. But here's another shot of an up-close blue whale. What is the largest land animal, though, that you know of? The elephant. That's right. Can you imagine how this elephant used to be a single microscopic cell in its mother? Isn't that just... Yeah, it just boggles your mind. But do you know what is the largest living organism on this planet? <laughs> organism. <laughs> do you, was that your hand going up? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the biting aspen. The roots go out and they have all the... Okay, that is noted to be one. However, they found something in August 1, 2000. It was found in the Mahler National Forest. Actually, it's in Eastern Oregon. I'm from Portland area. It's in Eastern Oregon, and it was found in underground caverns. And you know what it is? It's a mushroom or a fungus. It's a giant fungus. And here's a scientific word. I'm going to probably slaughter this. Armillaria ostoya. Armillaria ostoya. And researchers determined that this particular mushroom covered 2,200 acres. And they tested from this side and this side and it's the same mushroom. And they estimate it to be over 2,400 years old. Now, obviously life on planet Earth is full of variety, yes? There is a competing viewpoint in this world today, different from probably the viewpoint that you and I have all adhered to and we've talked about for the last two sessions. It's called evolutionism. Do you know how evolution teaches how we arrived at all this variety of life? Well, it says, how many are familiar with the National Association of Biology teacher? Okay, just one hand. Okay, this is an American-based scholarly society, and it states that it is designed or it's formed to empower educators to provide the best possible biology and life science education for all students. It was formed in 1938, it incorporated in 1956, and in 2008, it had its 70th anniversary. Um, its membership is currently over 9,000 biology educators and administrators, and most of them are in our public school systems. 
The NABT also publishes a journal called the American Biology Teacher nine times a year. And in there, its eminent scientist Theodosius Dobzhansky said in 1973, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. This is a statement off of their website about their mission statement. It says, the diversity of life on Earth Okay, that's what we're talking about, the variety there, right? The diversity of life on Earth is the outcome of evolution. An unsupervised, impersonal, impersonal, unpredictable, and natural process of temporal descent with genetic modifications that's affected by natural selections, chance, historical contingencies, and changing environments. This was their statement up until March 15, 1995. And apparently that statement wasn't accurate enough because now it reads this. The diversity of life on earth is the outcome of not just simply evolution, it says biological evolution, which is defined as an unpredictable and natural process of descent with modifications that's affected by natural selection, mutations, genetic drift, migration, and other natural biological and ge geological forces. Now friends, this is setting up a premise. Do you see what it is already? The statement goes on to say, and it clarifies the premise that you see here by saying, explanations or ways of knowing that invoke non-naturalistic or supernatural events or beings are outside the realm of science and not part of a valid science curriculum. Over 9,000 members in this society, and most of them are working as science teachers in our school systems. What they are being taught, what they are adhering to, is that we need to interpret everything through naturalistic means. In other words, if you try to see something and you, you look at it, observe it, study it, and for some reason it's pointing to a non-naturalistic or supernatural event that caused it to happen, it's not valid science. Why do you suppose science has been mutated in this way? Why is it now that science, I thought science long time ago was a quest for truth, right? It was another way to arrive at truth. And now today, it is no longer that. It's actually a tool to enforce a certain dogma. You see, they define science now as purely materialistic, naturalistic processes. This terminology is used that way. Why? Because true methodological science is a, truth for uh, is a quest for truth. But truth, it needs to be accepted regardless of the consequences. Isn't that right? Which is why when you and I have come face to face with the truth of Jesus Christ, something changed, right? But these folks do not want to change. In other words, they are trying to exclude God. Now, why do you suppose that is? Well, if there is no God, there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, there's no such thing as sin. 
if there's no such thing as sin, then I can do whatever I want. I can do however, whatever, whenever I want. My way, as Sinatra used to sing, right? You think I'm making this up? You think that's what's motivating these people? Let me show you some, what, some of what these notable people said. Uh, Richard Lewinton, he's a geneticist at Harvard, and this quote comes from an essay in the New York Review of Books in January 9, 1997. It says, we take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment. We have a prior commitment, and it is a commitment to materialism. He goes on to say, it is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the material world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori, you know what that means? What does a priori mean? Huh? In other words, it's something you can conclude without studying it, right? Uh, um, Galen Strawson says an, an a priori argument is an argument you can see that is true just by lying on your couch. You don't have to get up on your couch and go outside and examine the way things are in the physical world. You don't have to do any science. It's just true. It's so obvious. That's what it's saying. Okay? We are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that provide material explanations no matter how counterintuitive no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated and then he says something very blatant he says moreover that materialism is absolute for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door why in the world wouldn't you want a divine foot in the door? How many of you are familiar with Aldous Huxley? He's the grandson of the famous Darwinian apologist Thomas Huxley, and he freely admitted the personal biases that served as an impetus for his religious thinking. He said, for myself, as no doubt for some of my contemporaries, the philosophies of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. And this is where the quote picks up. We object to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. I have motives for not wanting the world to have more meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able to find without any difficulty find satisfying reasons for this assumption. Most ignorance is vincible ignorance. We don't know because we don't want to know. It is our will that decides how and upon what subjects we shall use our intelligence. This was written in 1937. Thomas Nagel was an atheistic philosopher. He was equally forthright in discussing his biases. He says, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent, well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope there is no God. 
I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. So according to the National Association of Biology Teachers, with its membership of over 9,000 biology educators and administrators, the variety or the diversity of life is a result of a natural process, not the result of supernatural creation. Friends, this is what we're competing against. But here's a question that I have for you. Are any of us well-versed enough in creation as some of the people who are proponents of evolution are well-versed in evolutionism? You and I, we say that we are Seventh-day Adventists, and as such, we should be on the forefront on creation science. And yet, how many of us here would have very great difficulty in explaining why a hummingbird can hover, or how clouds are formed, or why in the world do we have a creature that's called the platypus, or for that matter, where does life come from? It behooves us as Seventh-day Adventist Christians who believe in a creator God who created in six days and rested on the seventh, for us to know our creation science just as much as the evolutionists know theirs. Why? Because ultimately what we will be discovering is that both are nothing more than religions. They're fanatic. They're fanatical for theirs. Are you fanatical for yours? Am I doing everything to equip myself, to educate myself about the works and the workings of the Creator God? Remember, we talked about this in our last session, how there is this great controversy between Jesus and Satan. And it's over the issue of worship. Both system, creationism and evolutionism, those are nothing more than systems of worship. And in Revelation 14:7, we learned how the worship of the Creator God is the clarion call that's given by the first angel. And we talked about how this was referenced from which commandment? The fourth commandment, which calls us to remember the Sabbath day. Isn't it wonderful that God calls us to remember? Praise his name. Do you know why he calls us to remember? Because you and I forget. This is why in our first session today we talked about how in Ecclesiastes 12 it says to remember the creator and we learned actually we could translate it accurately as creators right referring to both all father son and holy spirit remember the creator remember the sabbath in revelation chapter 2 remember from where you've fallen god calls us to remember why because he wants to demonstrate not only that he is the creator of the universe, but that he can be 
the creator or recreator of your personal life. We were talking about how God calls us to remember those things that are important. Well, I think he also calls us to remember him as creator by the things that we see in nature. In fact, how many of you would agree that the second book of God is found in the book of nature? Okay. All right. We all understand the uh, theological terms, I guess, special revelation and general revelation, right? Special revelation is an example of that would be the Bibles that we have in front of us. Okay, how God especially reveals himself to us. General revelation is how God generally reveals himself to all of mankind without a book or something specific. Now, the reason why this is important is this. God is infinite, right? You and I are finite. Can the finite understand the infinite? No. So if God is God by definition, if he did not reveal himself to us, would we know anything about him? No. The only reason why we know anything about God is because he has revealed himself. He, he revealed himself in nature and through prophets, but in these last days he has revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the epitome of special revelation. If there was no Jesus, if there was no Bible, if there was no nature, we wouldn't have a clue about who God is. All right. So that is why we, are, we can see in the created works, we can see in the created works evidences of the creator. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at. And I apologize for this crazy title with a bunch of alliteration, but, you know, I sat there for a couple of days trying to figure out what's the best way to present these three topics. And so I just decided just to call it this, Creator's Created Creation Case. <laughs> In other words, what I'm trying to say, it's, it's the case for the Creator through His creation of the created things. Okay, but for me to write that on the screen was just too much. And so that's why I abbreviated this way. So what I'm hoping to do with the rest of our time together is even in the slightest way to convince you why I am a biblical creationist. Aside from all the theology that we talked about today, we're going to look at examples in the real physical world why I believe in Jehovah, who is the creator God of the Bible. And we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the anthropic principle. We're going to look at the avian lung. And we're going to look, like I promised, we're going to look at the awesome whale. All right? So let's just get started and look at the anthropic principle. Now, in the anthropic principle section, we're going to be talking about two different things. And we're going to deal with gravity first. <laughs> How many of you know about gravity? I know. Okay. Yeah, I know it well, exactly. When I was skateboarding in high school and I fell off the board, oh boy, I, my wrist knew it very well, and I had a compound fracture in my wrist. But did you know that gravity is essential for our lives? In fact, if we had a weaker gravity like the moon, all of us... I probably need to update this, but this is Michael Jordan, okay? For those of you who don't know who this is, this is Michael Jordan, all right? 
All of us would be able to slam dunk a basketball if our gravity was like that of the moon. But what about if we had no gravity at all? Think about that. We'd be like Michael Jordan. No, we would be more than Michael Jordan. We'd just go up and up and up and not come back down. Did you know gravity was essential for digestion? And it also is helpful in the process of elimination. <laughs> gravity is also important for us so that we can exercise. Here, this guy is incidentally picking up a thousand pounds, half a ton. Gravity also makes life a little bit more enjoyable. So I say. Well, I don't know. You guys have six flags just about an hour and a half away. And if it wasn't raining so much, maybe I was going to go, but uh, probably not. But think about it. The amount of gravity that we have is the right amount for life on this planet Earth. It's as if someone knew precisely, specifically, how much gravity we would need. You know, this isn't the only thing that has been finely tuned for human life, which is why it's called the anthropic principle. What do I mean by finely tuned? Well, for those of you who are old enough to remember what an analog radio looks like, remember how when you're trying to find a station, you're turning the dial and you just got... And then as soon as you got closer and closer to that radio station, it started, you could hear the words, and then it finally got very clear when you could fine tune the station to the correct station. Well, how finely tuned is gravity for you and me? Well, scientists tell us that the gravitational force constant, if it was any larger, Stars would be too hot and would burn too rapidly and too uneven, unevenly for any life chemistry to exist. If the gravitational force constant was too, if it was any smaller, then stars would be too cool to ignite nuclear fusion and thus many of the elements needed for life chemistry would not even form. And that's basically what the screen is telling you about. Well, that's gravity in a very small nutshell. But that's not the only finely tuned element. We're going to talk about electromagnetism next. And electromagnetism, it sounds a little complicated, but here's the layman's interpretation of it. Let's see that it's actually a compound of two words, electro and magnetic. All right, so basically, this is what it is. You know what this is, right? How many of you are scientists here? What is this here? Okay, what kind of atom? <laughs> Helium, very good. We have a scientist in our midst. In the middle, we have something called the nucleus, which is made up of protons, which are the plus, and sometimes it has neutrons. They're the ones in green. And the little things that spin around the nucleus are known as electrons. For those of us who don't have a science background, it would be similar to the moon rotating the Earth. Okay? That's done by gravity. In the atomic level, it's done through electromagnetism. Okay? And I've told you, this is a very simple way of explaining it. But let me ask you, what is keeping the moon from flying off into space? Why is it just constantly going around and around and around? We say gravity, right? Well, in the same sense, why isn't it that the electron 
flies off. In fact, this is the smallest atom represented. You know what it is, Mr. Scientist? Hydrogen. Hydrogen. And it's comprised of what? One proton and one electron. Did you know that if the hydrogen atom, if the nucleus, that middle thing there, if it was the size of a tennis ball, if it was the size of a tennis ball, the electron would be 1,836 times smaller than it, and it would be two miles away. That's how much space there is in a hydrogen atom. Why do you suppose the electron stays there and doesn't fly off? Well, in a sense, it's a plus minus attraction. And being a layman, I'm going to have to explain it in terms of kind of like a boy and a girl. You know, as long as they're attracted together, they'll stay around each other. You know what I mean? But as soon as the boy or the girl loses her attraction to the boy, she'll leave and the boy will cry, right? <laughs> so imagine if all the electrons decided to fly away and leave their protons. What would happen? Yeah, nothing would exist anymore. Well, in other words, if electromagnetism would change just even a tiny bit, none of the atoms would stay together. Do you want to know how much electromagnetism needs to change before the girl leaves the boy? Well, let me show you. The electron, electromagnetic force constant, if it was any greater, chemical bonding would be disrupted and elements more massive than boron would be unstable to fusion. If it was any smaller, then chemical bonding would be insufficient for the existence of any life chemistry. So in other words, it again is very finely tuned for life to exist, not just on this planet, but I would even submit on this, in this whole universe. So we looked, remember, at the anthropic principle, and we're looking at gravity and electromagnetism, but I want to show you something more fascinating. Scientists have termed a ratio between the two, and it's called the electromagnetic gravitational ratio, okay? This is talking about the fine-tunedness of electromagnetism and the fine-tunedness of gravitation and how they correlate with each other. And this ratio of the electromagnetic force constant to the gravitational force constant, if it was any larger, all stars would be at least 40% more massive than the sun. Hence, stellar burning would be too brief and too uneven for any life to exist. If it was any smaller, then all stars would be at least 20% less massive than the sun, and therefore it would be incapable of producing any heavy elements. This isn't even talking about the ratio of electron to proton mass and some of these things. I know a lot of this is even over my head. Maybe not to Mr. Scientist over there. But I want to show you this table here. Take a look at this. These are the parameters on the left, and on the right are the max deviation. And as of August 2006, according to Dr. Hugh Ross, by the way, he's actually a theistic evolutionist, which is a little different, uh, but he does have his PhD in, in astronomy from the University of Toronto. He's a postdoctoral fellow at Caltech, and he's studying quasars and galaxies. He's identified 
right now as of August 2006, and it hasn't been updated since then, that there are 93 such characteristics, not just these one, two, three, four, five, but 93 qualities of the entire universe that are so finely tuned for life to exist. Now these numbers here, the, the max deviations, these are the accepted values that would either prevent the universe from existing now or not having matter or to be unsuitable for any form of life. In other words, that's how much it would have to deviate. But that's a little hard to imagine, isn't it? When you see those types of numbers. Well, maybe not for Mr. Scientist, but for you and me, it would be very difficult to understand what kind of numbers we're talking about. We remember, we were just talking about the ratio of the electromagnetic force and gravity constant, right? And I, and scientists say that would only have, you would have to deviate one to the 10 to the 40th power before life would not exist. We're going to take one a little easier than that, okay? We're going to look at the ratio of electrons to protons. It's a little smaller number, okay? Not by much, but it's a little smaller. And I want to illustrate this. This is the amount of change necessary. 1 times 10 to the 37. Okay, that looks like the size of U.S. deficit, right? <laughs> Let me put this in perspective. Stack the whole North America continent in dimes to the moon. North America, that includes Canada and Mexico, okay? Cover all of that territory with dimes and just stockpile the dimes all the way up to the moon. Now, take that pile and duplicate it one billion times. Paint one dime red, blindfold your friend, and ask him to find that red dime. That's how incredibly small this deviation is. The chances that he would be able to pick that red dime is 1 in 10 to the 37th power. It is no wonder that George Greenstein, who is a PhD at Yale University, uh, an astronomy professor at Amherst, uh, actually he got his PhD at Yale University, he's an astronomy professor at Amherst College. He says, as we survey all the evidence, the thought instant, insistently arises that some, what does he say? Supernatural agency, or rather, agency with a capital A, must be involved. He goes on, is it possible that suddenly, Without intending to, we have stumbled upon scientific proof of the existence of a supreme being? Was it God who stepped in and so providentially crafted the cosmos for our behalf? What a powerful testimony from an atheist. So friends, that is the anthropic principle. Now we're going to get into something a little bit more fun. I know that was probably a little bit heavy science, right? That's why I put it in the beginning. Okay? Now we're going to have some fun. The avian lung. What does avian mean? A bird. That's right. So it's a fancy way of saying bird, but since I was trying to keep everything starting with the letter A, I decided to use avian. How many of you are into motorcycling? Well, if you are, don't get married because your wife will not let you get one. Okay? And I, is my wife here? 
Oh, it's good. She's outside. This was my dream bike for years. I know it's a little outdated, but uh, this is the Yamaha YZF-R1. Now, one thing I like about motorcycles is, well, they're fast. And they're fun. But how many of you have ever ridden a motorcycle without a helmet? Anyone? Okay, a few of you. Did you ever experience this? <laughs> okay, so if you've never ridden a motorcycle, maybe you've experienced what this dog is experiencing by driving down the highway or freeway and sticking your head out the window, right? What do you notice immediately? If you're going something like 20 miles an hour and you stick your head out the window as you're driving, what do you notice immediately? Okay. Resistance, yeah. You can't breathe as well. Huh. Why is that? You're going too fast, right? Which is why mankind should never exceed 20 miles an hour. <laughs> Which is what some scientists said in the past. Did you know that? Yeah. They said those contraptions that put out all that steam and stuff, those are abomination. Seriously, science decried technology at one point. Well, anyway, how many of you know what the fastest animal is? Ah, everybody says the cheetah. Come on, friends, it's not the cheetah. You're right, this is the fastest land animal. Anyone incidentally know how fast it, it, it runs? Actually, they've clocked one at 46.6 miles per hour. So almost 47 miles an hour. That's pretty fast, isn't it? Yeah, but the reason why it doesn't always catch the gazelle is because the gazelle has more stamina and can outlast it. It can only sprint that speed for a very brief time and then, <laughs> okay. But actually, the fastest animal in the world is the, no, not the flea. That's right, it's the peregrine falcon. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Yeah. The peregrine falcon can fly at 100 miles an hour. Woo! I think the fastest I've ever driven a car was 150. No, I'm, I'm being serious. It was on the 505 from, uh, yeah, naughty, naughty. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have said that. I'm being recorded, aren't I? <laughs> But the reason I'm saying this is, you know, that seems faster than this falcon, right? He only flies 100 miles an hour. I've driven 150, maybe a little bit more, but 150 miles an hour. But did you know that when it's diving to catch a prey, it can dive to speeds of over 160 miles an hour? Wow. wow. But here's the interesting thing. While it's diving at that speed, which is obviously faster than the 20 miles an hour sticking your head out the window, right? This peregrine falcon is breathing, it's diving, and it's also, ah, or however they cry, right? <laughs> it's making all sorts of noises, and it's doing this perfectly fine, where you and I, we have difficulty even at 20 miles an hour with our head out the window. Why do you suppose it is that birds can fly at such high speeds and still breathe and sing at the same time? You ever think about that? Well, it's because of the way the anatomy or the physiology of their lungs have been designed. 
You will notice here a, a common blue jay. Birds have different lungs than animals do, land animals that is, all right? You and I, we share common characteristics like the lung and the trachea, but you and I, we don't have this rear and front air sacs. What are these used for? Well, let me explain it this way. Here's another picture. Reptile lung, now this, I had to get, obviously it's from a, you know, evolution textbook and that's why they say reptile. Reptile is uh, explaining the land animal lung. In fact, you and I fit into this category. When you and I breathe, air enters our lung through the same hole that air exits out of. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Here is my lung here. When air goes through my nose or my mouth down my windpipe and it splits off from the trachea into two branches and the, the passages through which the air enters my lungs are right here. Those are the same holes that the air is expelled out of the lungs. For birds, birds enter, uh, air enters the bird's lung through one hole, but exits out another. Yeah, it goes in and out of the same nose and windpipe, but I'm talking about the lungs itself. So in other words, what it has is a pipe from its nose down to its lung, and then on the back end of the lung, it has another exit hole, which then exits out into these air sacs. And these air sacs then push the air back through the windpipe and out its mouth. Here's an illustration of how that works. Here's the inhalation. You can see the fresh air being taken in through the uh, bird's nose. And as it goes in through the windpipe, it goes into the lungs through this, through this track here, right? But as it exits out the lung, it, the air will not go back up this route. It will actually go into these sacs and then it will exit out this route. So air goes in through this pipe, but exits out through this pipe. So in other words, the bird's lung is like a jet engine. It is one way flow only, which is why it's able to fly at such speeds and still breathe and sing without any problems. Interestingly enough, for those of you here last time, what day were birds created? The fourth day. Is there any reason why they weren't created on the, I mean, the, the fifth day. Is there any reason why they weren't created on the sixth day with the land animals? What characteristics do they share with the other animals that were created on the fifth day? Fish. Yeah. Fish also breathe one way. Now, I'm not suggesting that those are similar biologically or anything like that, but isn't it interesting that the, the two kinds of animal types that God created on day five to fill the form of atmosphere are birds and fish? But interestingly enough, evolution tells us that these birds came from... Does anyone know? No? Reptiles, that's right. You see, the evolutionists want you to believe that birds came from reptiles over a period of million and million, millions and millions of years. 
So we'll call this dinosaur Mr. Dino. Well, he was tired of seeing Mr. Crocodile eat all of his family members and friends. And so one day, Mr. Dino got this very brilliant idea and he said, why don't I invent something new? Why is it that I have to come back down after I jump? In fact, why don't I keep going up and up and up? In fact, let me invent a new word, fly. So in other words, what evolutionists are telling you is that the chicken, okay, the sparrow, the birds, all came from a land-based animal, a reptile. How many of you can hold your breath for millions and millions of years? Well, I don't think Mr. Dino could either. But interestingly enough, somehow the change was so gradual that the lungs rearranged itself so that reptiles could become birds. You know, this is saying that the reptile, which had a unidirectional lung, had to develop into a bidirectional lung. And the reasons evolutionists say this happened was because that's how it is right now. And so it must have happened. Friends, this doesn't even take into account developing wings, feathers, hollow bones. All of these are very difficult for the evolutionists to explain. In fact, if I had time, I would go into the different types of transition fossils that they claim are uh, transitions between reptiles and birds and show you the amount of deception that has been perpetrated. But for time's sake, we got to get out of here in about five minutes, so we're going to have to move on. We're going to talk about the awesome whale here, and hopefully we can do this very quickly. Uh, there was a scientist, his name is Porter Keir. He's an invertebrate paleontologist and a museum administrator. He earned his PhD degree from Cambridge in 1954. He joined the staff of the United States National Museum in 1957. Uh, he has so many accolades. He basically is the leading authority on fossils and he served as president of the Paleontolog Paleontological Society of America and was its editor for its publication, the Journal of Paleontology, for over 15 years. He wrote, there are a hundred million fossils all cataloged and identified in the museum around the world. That's a lot of fossils, friends, okay? Now, why is then this awesome whale problematic? Well, among all those fossils, the hundred million fossils, we do not have a single transitional fossil that shows how the whale evolved according to evolution. Now, why is the whale problematic? Whales are what? Mammals. What is a, ma what is a mammal? Okay, that's right. A mammal is a creature that has mammary glands and feeds its young its own milk. Okay, that's what a mammal's definition is. Mammals were supposed to be one of the latest product of evolution. But evolutionist says that life came from the 
sea. So in other words, this fish decides to become an amphibian, decides to become a reptile, decides to become a mammal, and then decides, hey, wait a minute, I really like going back into the ocean, so I want to become... Don't laugh. I'm serious. This is a very serious topic for them. Which is why they're trying to answer this question. Where is the transition fossil? And this is what they come up with. It says here, for instance, modern whales are the descendants of four-legged land animals. This is what we're talking about, right? That are also the ancestors of horses and cows. As you can see in figure 10-4, uh, fossil intermediates between modern whales and their 60 million year old ancestor reveals a history of slow transformation. And so we see the Mesonychid and the Ambulocetus and the Rhodocetus and the Basilosaurus. And these are examples of how land animals slowly changed over 60 million years in order to become a whale. Here's a better picture of these creatures. Now, as you can see, these pictures exist. They exist in a textbook. Okay? Now, here are some characteristics about the whale that makes it really awesome. It has an enormous lung capacity with efficient oxygen exchange for very long dives. It has powerful tails with horizontal flukes. Notice fish do this. Whales do this. Eyes that have been designed to see underwater and withstand high pressure. Now remember, it's coming from the land. Your eye, my eye, is different than that of a whale. And so somewhere along the line, a mammal decides to jump in the water and decides it needs to change its eye. Okay? And not only that, it has ears designed to pick up not only airborne sound waves, but also waterborne sound waves and eardrums to withstand immense pressures. And mammals, I thought, typically had sweat glands and hair and things like that, but I guess you don't need that in the water anymore because your skin, or whale's skin, lacks any hair or any sweat glands, but rather they have something called blubber. The fins and the tongue, they have counter-current heat exchangers to minimize heat loss. It's a wonderfully engineered thermal animal. Not only that, the nose. Now, I know this is going to be amusing for some of you, but when in the world did you decide to have plastic surgery to move your nose from the front of your face to the back of your head? <laughs> how, how do you do that? I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. And they claim this took place over millions and millions of years. We just didn't know about it, but that's what happened is what they say. They have blowholes on the top of their heads. I thought all mammals had noses on the front of their faces. Have you ever seen a mammal with a nose on the back of their head? I haven't. Friends, this is not even talking about how the whales are able to breastfeed underwater. Or even give birth underwater and, and its sonar capabilities. How does it decide all of a sudden to, oh, you know what? I need sonar in water and develop this immensely complicated system that even scientists today are still studying about for our submarine technologies. 
Is this, is there any observable example or evidence for these change or are these all based on just artist drawings? Well, Dr. Kamenelis says in his book, Creative Defense, Evidence Against Evolution, he says, insufficient time exists for such well evolution to have occurred. Genetic calculations demonstrate that animals with 20 years between each generation could transmit to their offspring no more than about 1,700 mutations during a 10 million year period. However, all mutations are harmful to animals. Now, here is where I, as a lay creationist, would take issue with what Dr. Camnillis says. Actually, mutations are not harmful to animals. Not all of them are. Some of them are actually beneficial, which is why evolution makes such a compelling case. Okay? But the, the, probably the more scientific accurate statement here would be that all mutation results in loss of genetic material. Okay? But be that as it may, he goes on, even if these 1,700 mutations were helpful, the new genetic code needed for a land animal to become a whale would be millions upon millions of beneficial mutations. And here's a picture you will find in a standard high school, college, entry-level uh, biology book. And in here, it, it has some writings here on the bottom left, and it says there, and I'll read it for you. Evolution's critics have pointed to gaps in the fossil record and noted the lack of evidence for transitional creatures between land and sea mammals. By 1994, however, paleontologists have found fossilized remains of Ambulocetus natans, an animal which name means swimming whale who walks. And notice it's painted with a, a mammal-like creature here because it had to have come from mammals, and so it existed when mammals existed too. This is an artist's rendition, but look at this artist's rendition, okay? Here is another of the same creature. Here is another, yet another. And supposedly this is what the fossil looks like. And friends, people who study biology, students, young, young students, will be shown this in textbooks. And that's it. What they're not shown is that the ambulocetus was found in this manner in just a textbook. This was found in Kenneth Miller's Finding Darwin's God. And in there he talks about how the ambulocetus fossil was found in Pakistan. And there's some interesting things about it here. The ambulocetus was found, this is the reconstruction that you will see in museums and things like that, okay? These, this second layer, right, this picture here, these are, these are the actual bones that were found in the, in the dig, okay? That's less than 50% of all the bones that you see reconstructed in A. B is what they found. A is what they extrapolate. You will also notice there are some bones here in blue. You know what that is? Those blue bones were found 15 feet above the rest of the other bones. Now, you and I were like, well, so it's pretty close, but you have to understand, the geological column will not allow for a, an animal that lived in this layer to have bones being buried in another layer 15 feet above. 
Notice also there is no pelvic girdle. Those of you who are doctors or who've taken anatomy, physiology, know that without the pelvic girdle, you don't know how the creature ambulated. Right? So how in the world can they reconstruct A from B and realize that actually somehow or another that this ambulocetus was at the end of a power stroke during swimming without the pelvic girdle? Well, it looks like a whale-like predecessor, so that's what it must be. That's what they're saying. All right, well, fine. Maybe it's not the ambulocetus. Maybe it's the pachycetus. And this is another candidate for the transition uh, animal between land animal and, and uh, whale. But you know what? This animal was based upon two pieces of bone from the skull the back and a part of the jawbone, and that's how they extrapolated the whole framework of the pachycetus. Senior paleontologist, uh, the British Museum of Natural History, Colin Patterson, he was asked why he did not include any transitional forms for the whale in his book on evolution. This is what he replied. I fully agree with your comment on the lack of direct illustrations of evolutionary transitions in my book. If I knew of any, fossil or living, I would have certainly have included them. Yet Gould and the American Museum people are hard to contradict when they say there are no transitional fossils. I will lay it on the line that not one such fossil for which one Oh, sorry. I will lay it on the line that there is not one such fossil for which one could make a watertight argument. Now, he referenced another scientist, Gould. Stephen Gould is actually also evolutionistic, but he doesn't believe in gradual evolution. He, he believes and he, purport, he uh, espouses a doctrine called punctuated equilibrium, which is... A fancy way of saying, in the geological column, it looks like, boom, all this life appeared. That's what he says. Now, doesn't that sound a little bit more like what the Bible says? But he calls it punctuated equilibrium. And so Gould and his scientists say, there are no transitional uh, fossils. It only happened all at once. Friends. Scientists today, honest scientists today, are perplexed with some of the challenges that creation or the created creatures that the Creator created presents to them. We've looked at just three. What we need to realize is that all of this is nothing more than a demonstration of the great controversy between Christ and Satan and how Satan wants to divert worship of the true creator God to worshiping himself. He wants every single one of you to worship him. Which is why in Revelation 13 and 14, seven times out of eight, he tries to get worship. Either through the dragon, the beast, or the image of the beast. He doesn't care. Give me worship. But one out of the eight... God says, worship him who made. Henry Solomon Lipson, he says, he was a uh, 
a fellow of Royal Society. He was elected FRS back in 1957. This is one of the highest honors in the academic world. Uh, he just passed, well not just, he passed away in 1991, but this is what he uh, wrote in the Physics Bulletin 1980, volume 31, page 138. It's entitled, A Physicist Looks at Evolution. I think, however, that we must go further than this and admit that the only acceptable explanation is creation. And then he says, and he uses this interesting word. Does anyone recognize it? I know that this is anathema. What is an anathema? Blasphemy. Blasphemy cursed. Loathed. Damned. This is a religious word. And I think he's using it deliberately. I know that this is an anathema to physicists, uh, physicists as, is, as indeed it is to me. But we must not reject a theory that we do not like if the experimental evidence supports it. Amen. He then goes on and says, in fact, evolution became, in a sense, a scientific religion. Almost all scientists have accepted it, and many are prepared to bend their observations to fit in with it. Arthur Field is an Australian geologist. He said, what is it? or evolution based upon, upon nothing whatever but faith, upon belief in the reality of the unseen, belief in the fossils that cannot be produced, belief in the embryological experiments that refuse to come off. It is faith unjustified by works. Friends, we have a clear, concise alternative to this. Simply worship him who made heaven and earth. Friends, this is not just a call to worship any Elohim, any God. This is a specific call to worship the true creator God whose name is Jehovah. And I'm going to leave you with this question. Isn't it about time we creationists study our textbook? Shouldn't we become so familiar with the things of life and existence and of the Creator? As much as those evolutionists are out there trying to find answers for some of the very difficult questions that are being presented. Friends, they even admit what they believe in is that of belief, of faith. I submit to you today the faith that you and I have in Jehovah Jesus Christ, Jehovah Father God, Jehovah Holy Spirit is something so valuable, it's so priceless, and yet it's freely available to all because even that faith is a gift from God. Amen. The question is, do you want to recommit your life to this creator God called Jehovah? Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, the sun has set, a new day has begun. And with the beginning moments of this new day, we want to consecrate ourselves to you. 
We want to make this our very first work. So, Father God, we ask that you take our hearts, for we cannot give them. They are your property. Keep them pure, for we cannot keep them for you. We want you to mold us and fashion us and raise us into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of your love, your image, your character can flow through our souls so that we may be a blessing to everyone that we come in contact, to everyone we proclaim, yes, I believe in the creator God of the Bible, whose name is Jehovah. Help us to accept the title, children of God, and prepare us for that day when you will give us new names. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.